0: Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles program that we call Things We Said Today. I'm Ken Michaels, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this show, and this is actually a very exciting time in the history of this program. I'm going to bring on my co-host, who has been with me for the past two years, the man who writes for Beatles Examiner and many other Examiner columns, that being Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve.
1: Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. Yes, indeed. This is an exciting, exciting moment.
0: Yeah, it's a new chapter, I would say, in the history of the show. We've been doing the show now for, as I said, over two years. And uh, more recently, you and I have been talking about possibly adding some co-hosts to the show. And so we have three brand new co-hosts to have on the program who will be part of our show every single week. And um, for those of you who have listened to the show, they've all been guests on this program. And also, those of you who have subscribed to Beatle Fan all these many years, these three guys have written for a Fan for many years. And uh, I'm really happy to announce that these three people are a part of this show because they've done so much work on the Beatles. And, uh, you know, resumes mean a lot to me. And when you see people who have done really outstanding work through the years, and have done it for a long period of time, I'm really proud to announce them on the show. So... Uh, before I bring them on, I'm just going to tell you who the three people are. There is Al Sussman, who's been writing for Beatle Fan since, I believe, let me get it right this time, Al, 1978? Roughly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, also, uh, well, Al also wrote a book most recently that he can tell us more about if he wants to get into that. Alan Kozen, who has been writing for Beatle Fan for quite a long time, and he's uh, been a culture reporter. That's his title at the New York Times. He's been working for the New York Times for quite a while, and he's written several Beatle books as well. Hi, Alan. Hello, folks. Hi, Ken. And then we have Robert Rodriguez, who has written a number of Beatle books in the last few years. He's authored the Fab Four FAQ series, Fab Four FAQ and Fab Four FAQ 2.0, and also, he wrote a book on uh, the Beatles album Revolver, and more recently, one called Solo in the 70s. So, hello, Robert, and welcome
2: to Things We Said Today. Hi, everybody. Good to be here.
0: What I thought we'd do, since this is our first show together as the five of us, for anyone that's not familiar with our backgrounds and the work that we've done, for each of you to just give an explanation of that. And we'll start with Al, you know, talk about your whole history and, uh, and your work with Beatlefin.
3: Well, this is a, it's a long and winding road, to coin a phrase. <laughs> um, I guess the, probably my, the first writing I've done on, on, on the Beatles was in, 19, in the fall of 1969, when I was doing a teen column in, uh, in a town paper in Maywood, New Jersey, and I wrote a little bit about Abbey Road. And, uh, you know, I did that column for a couple of years. In the mid-70s, I did a collector's Q&A column for a a record store freebie called Sounds Fine, which, uh, in fact, Trouser Press later bought out. Um, Hmm. And then shortly after that, uh, also I did a couple of pieces for Barb Fennec's uh, The Right Thing in the mid-70s. Aha. Oh, yes, I remember that. Right. And then, about uh, uh, early '79, uh, became involved with uh, with Beatle Fan as the uh, New York correspondent. And then the first, my first piece for Beatle Fan appeared in the the last issue of the, of the the magazine's first year. So um, I've been writing. For Beetle Fan for you know roughly thirty five, thirty six years, uh, although not not much the last couple of years because I was involved with uh, with finishing up my book Changing Times: One Hundred and One Days That Shaped the Generation. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll have a couple of pieces in Beetle Fan's last issue of of the year, and that, those will actually be the first pieces I've had in the magazine in probably a couple of years.
0: And not only that, but um... When these guys write articles for Beetle Fan, if they feel they want to talk about it here on the show, this is a, a great forum mm-hmm. for that. So uh, yeah. So what year did Beetle Fan start? Actually, uh,
3: it began at the, uh, the at the end of 1978, okay. and um, I became involved early in '79 as the uh, the New York correspondent, and which was right. basically in those days, primitive as this may sound, basically was. You know, sending you know clipping articles from New York newspapers and magazines, and putting them in a uh, Manila envelope and sending them down to Decatur, Georgia, uh, where Bill King would uh, you know would would you know
0: use them in compi- uh, compiling the news. Mm. Wow, it's just so amazing to think that that magazine has been around for that I long know. and all. You know, I know
3: it really is. It really is, especially when you consider the the technology of the time and the way that Bill and Leslie King basically put the magazine together on their kitchen table, mm. <laughs> and now are able to do it, you know, simply on a desktop computer on a, on a uh, on an iMac.
0: Right, know. and it's also something that I appreciate so much to see people. Like, like Bill and Leslie, who put together this magazine when it's not their livelihood. Right. It's just something that they do on the yeah. side, much like a lot of people I know in radio yes. <laughs> who do this on the side <laughs> as well. Yes. So it's more a labor of love and, uh, you know, kudos to, to Bill and Leslie mm-hmm. for that. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Especially, oh, yeah. Especially since you know they really, except
3: for maybe a couple of times in the early '90s when uh, uh, when they were uh, uh, in London, actually following the McCartney tour, the '89 '90 McCartney tour, the magazine has come out every two months, six times every year, consistently for virtually the entire the entirety of its history.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And something that Bill knows, and all of you know, and especially Steve, because he's doing news on a day-by-day mm-hmm. basis. You know, we're very fortunate that there's, there's always news yes. out there on the Beatles so frequently, and that really has helped the magazine, although there's a lot of historic articles as mm-hmm. well. You
3: know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was a, there was a stretch there in the mid-'80s when there really was not a lot happening. Uh, and so we uh, that was when... I particularly, I began doing a lot of kind of historical pieces, but, uh, but no, no, it's, uh, that's the amazing thing that uh, after 35 years, there's still so much, um, so much, you know, news wise, that's still very pertinent. Uh, And plus also, uh, you know, we've got also this, this new crop of, uh, of people writing for the magazine in fact, I've uh, joked that, uh, that you know, I've had a hard time getting back in <laughs> because we've got so many young people like Robert and like Kid O'Toole and Jeff Slade and others who uh, who really are, are really contributing greatly to uh, the continuation of Beatle fans' tradition.
0: Right. And it's also great to get different perspectives from people based on their ages, whether you're a first generation fan or a, or a new exactly. fan. Exactly. So
4: tell us about your What?
3: Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I always forget to do that. My fatal mistake. Right, Robert? Oh,
2: yes. (laughs) We'll phone you.
3: Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Uh, it's called Change in Times, 101 Days that Shaped a Generation. It came out almost exactly a year ago, I think. Uh, Robert may have the date, but uh, since yeah. Ro- Robert is my um, is base, he and he and Richard Buskin are basically my uh, proprietors, publishers, uh, publishers, yeah. Exactly, and um, came out as I said just almost exactly a year ago. It's a uh, portrait of the 101 days from uh, the very change-filled and historic 101 days, uh, beginning November 22nd, 1963, and ending March 1st, 1964, which you know encompassed the the assassination of President Kennedy, the Beatles breakthrough in, in the U.S., and a lot of other a lot of other stuff that was happening. Uh, both uh, at the surface and below the surface that uh, paved the way for change.
0: Yeah, it's really an excellent book, and it, it has a lot to do with everything going on in our culture at that time. And it really is amazing how much change was developing in every sense of the word, whether you're talking about the entertainment mm-hmm. field, sports, you name it. And you cover that really well in the book, a highly recommended Thank book. Thank you very right much. I appreciate, it. So, I
3: appreciate it, Ken.
0: All right, Alan, how about you? Tell the folks about your background in doing work on The Beatles and also uh, your work with The New York Times. Okay. um, You know, I
4: started writing for The Times in 1977 and was, for most of the time, principally a classical music writer. Um, I was a classical music critic until, really, 2012, and then I became a culture reporter. But along the way, um, because... I guess various pieces came up, I mean, starting off with uh, what was essentially cover albums by classical musicians of Beatles tunes, and then some other things and some interactions with John Perelis, who is still the chief pop critic, they got the idea that the Beatles was a specialty of mine, and so when the first CDs came out in 1987, they had me review them. And after that, I began doing more of the Beatles-related things that the Times had going. Uh, you know, if 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 McCartney had a new album and was available for interviews and things like that, I would I would do that. I interviewed Ringo, I interviewed George Martin, um, interviewed Yoko a few times for various projects and it, it kind of became my my part of my domain at the times and it was kind of funny because uh, john forellis at one point went uh to to the juilliard school as a guest speaker and told them uh, we we are the only daily newspaper in the US that has a specific beatle desk and it's in the classical music department <laughs> so um huh. Yeah and you know along the way I mean early on I was freelancing a lot as well and I started writing for Beetle Fan in I think 1982 or so maybe a little later maybe 83 and that really was the result of something I look back at now with great embarrassment which is that uh, I'd read I'd subscribed to Beetle Fan I read uh, a bunch of issues and for some reason there was just something About various aspects of it, including the the typesetting, the way the pages were laid out, uh, that, I don't know, just sort of set me off. And I wrote Bill a letter just complaining about various of these things. And Bill wrote back... saying, you know, you don't really understand the way fanzines work. You know, we put this together on our kitchen table, as Al said. And, of course, he was completely right. I mean, I was thinking of it. I don't know what I was thinking of it as. I mean, it was clearly a fanzine. I knew what a fanzine was. Um, But I felt so guilty that I started writing reviews and just sending them to Bill. And he started printing them. Um, and after a while, he made me a contributing editor, and um, we worked out a, a sort of interesting deal where if I went to interview McCartney, say, for the Times, and the Times is going to want a twelve hundred word through written piece, you know, with quotes in it and descriptions and and whatever. But I knew that Bill would be completely happy getting a complete. QA transcript of the interview and so there was going to be a lot of material that wasn't published in the Times piece, Uh, a lot of things that in the course of the interview we would talk about that would be of great interest to Bill and Beatle fan readers that wouldn't particularly be of interest in the Times. Uh, So I began doing that and, uh, you know, whenever I have a Beatles-related interview, I tend to send it to Bill. Uh, and I've written some other essays along the way, and uh, but but I don't contribute nearly as much as Al uh, or now Robert, uh, and I and I I keep thinking you really have the things I should do, and and undoubtedly we'll come up with something again, um, and I also have these two books, uh, one is actually uh, an ebook, so I'm not sure. Really counts as a book thoroughly. But um the first one was for Fiden Press, which is a British publisher. Uh, they were doing a series of the great composers of the 20th century. And at the time, the Beatles volume was the only non-classical volume of the series. And I kind of like that because it Meant that you know you'd have this series of I think what was planned to be something like fifty books, and it would be Stravinsky and uh, Penderecki and all all of these great twentieth century composers, and the Beatles. Uh, they subsequently added a couple of other pop volumes. I think you know Simon and Garfunkel and Dylan and folk singers, and uh, um, but the Beatles was was the first non-classical. Group in the series. And I really enjoyed writing that book. And it's still in print. They've reissued it. Now it's called The Beatles From the Cavern to the Rooftop. Uh, It was originally just called The Beatles. And then last year, because the 50th anniversary was coming up, the New York Times Book Division, Times Books, asked me to write uh, an e book. About I want to hold your hands and what the importance of I want to hold your hand was in the Beatles story and really to us in general the world at large, and so I did that and it's called Got That Something How the Beatles I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything. Uh, it was it's a it's published by Times Books and Byliner. Byliner quickly went out of business uh, after the book appeared. Uh, and somehow or other, the Times got the right to liner ebooks And so they've reappeared on Amazon.com and iTunes and other places. So I think that's it for me.
0: Just out of curiosity, Alan, when you lent the interview with McCartney to BeetleFan, did you get any opposition from the New York Times? Could you um, share your interviews if you wanted to?
4: No, I don't think anybody really objected. I mean, actually, strangely enough, the New York Times gets Beatle fan, uh, you know, besides me getting it. Uh, someone else in the music department gets it, our music department administrator. Um, so I know that they see it. And I think they just, uh, you know, they've, they've had different feelings at different times about what we're allowed to do. I think... Um, they generally speaking haven't objected if i've shared a a qa with beetle fan um because it's you know it kind of makes sense really and uh yeah i I don't know
0: (laughs) okay sorry that's okay robert how about you talk about your background and what led you to writing all the beetle books that you have
2: well, I, I will tell you right up front that I didn't set out to be a guy that wrote nothing but Beatle books. And I actually have as a background – it's a pop culture historian kind of background. Um, the first couple books I did uh, – the very first book I did was something called The 1950s Most Wanted, which was sort of this um, 50 the, – the, um, background background. On the 1950s, but not in sort of a happy days, obvious sort of way, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Dwight Eisenhower, that sort of thing. I wanted to be a little more comprehensive, but also touching on the history that is largely forgotten. And so I was given the latitude to write about politics and movies and TV and rock and roll, you know, all the stuff that I had deep interests in. And funnily enough, the roots of my first Beatle book, Fab Four FAQ, were in that very 1950s book because one of the things I wanted to write about, just to do something different with the decade, was do a chapter on what people that became famous after the 50s were doing in the 50s. And that actually ended up in the book, but being the hardcore Beatle fan that I was, I couldn't resist doing an entire chapter on the Beatles in the 1950s you know, such as it was, you know, the Roots of the Quarrymen and how far they took it until the turn of the decade. So it, along with a lot of other material, ended up not going into the book because I basically overwrote the thing and the publisher didn't want as much as I'd written. But that became the first chapter of Fab Four FAQ, which came along in 2007. And therein, you know, not being, unlike other Beatle writers, somebody that was a first-generation fan who – Experienced the Ed Sullivan Show and saw their ascent and breakup in real time, I kind of came to the table a little later. You know, once I started to really have an interest in the Beatles, it was after they were already broken up. And really, the gateway for me was the Red and the Blue album coming out in 73. You know, Christmas 73, I got, you know, my first album of actual music and not children's stuff, and that was the Red album. And that just led down the rabbit hole to everything else because, you know, once I recognized with amazement how incredibly diverse these guys were, you know, over the course of their career and those four discs, you know, I had to then go get every single album in their catalog. And once you do that, you start picking up on the solo releases, you start picking up on the bootlegs, and I just wanted to absorb everything I possibly could about these guys. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of books about the Beatles in the 70s. I mean, you could pretty much count them on one hand. At the time, I started getting into it, and I just really started being a collector of paper, of old Rolling Stone magazine and Cream and Circus, and you know, if I was lucky enough to stumble across Enemies or Melody Makers, you know, just Trying to get my hands on first-hand interviews with the Beatles during the sixties while they were creating the body of work, and so I just became kind of steeped in that stuff. So, as a shorthand, I kind of tell people that I wrote the first FAQ book so that I could get the right to second one, which covers the period from nineteen seventy to nineteen eighty because that was really my era as far as becoming a Beatles fan, where you had you know all the promotion and ongoing residual Beatle mania throughout that decade. Whether it be the 10th anniversary push, which in 74 was a pretty big thing, where you had that capital you know, montage piece of artwork that showed the four of them as they looked circa that time as if they were still a band. And yet you've got the the solo releases coming out that same time. And being in the charts and George being on tour, it was just an amazing time. And we had no idea how lucky we had it. But for the fact that, you know, they didn't ever actually get back together, which everybody really, really was hoping for, you know, we, we in retrospect, it was a really kind of a second golden age. But that, to me, the period where John was still alive and they could have gotten together and they weren't really looked at as past tense history yet was fascinating to me. And so that was the basis of Fab 4 FAQ 2.0, which I put out as the sort of comprehensive history of the four parallel solo ex-Beatle paths with the giant shadow of the Beatles hanging over them and every move they made during that decade. And I didn't really feel that I'd covered everything in as great a depth as I wanted to. So that was why I took all the other stories I'd been putting together and put out the book this past year, Solo in the 70s, which goes into more detail that decade. And then I put together a timeline at the end of the book to really tie everything together so anybody who's interested in what they were going through from 1970 to 1980, could really see week to week, month to month, year to year, how it all fit together. And in between, I wrote a book focusing on the turning point in their career where they segued from being a performing band to a studio band. And that was the book Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll. And it was written in a way as sort of a reaction to, you know, through the years, you know, Rolling Stone, not that long ago, compiled their 500 Greatest Rock Albums of All Time list and put Pepper at the top of the heap. And I remember thinking, that's not even the best Beatle album, you know, in my own perspective. But it is the one that was sociologically the most important. But I wanted to make the case that, you know, really, with their prior release, Revolver, that was really the turning point in their career on so many levels, both being the last time all four Beatles were fully invested in making the best beatle music they could as a team, as the four headed monster, before the Spree Decor started to decay within. And I also wanted to explore why it wasn't recognized at the time for the achievement that it was. And I again try to contextualize the time and what was going on in 1965, 66, and you know, what was going on in their careers, what was going on in rock generally, you know, just this amazing year with so many great landmark albums came out and you know Revolver is, you know, shoulder to shoulder with Blonde on Blonde and Pet Sounds and Aftermath and Face to Face and Roger the Engineer and all this other great stuff. So I I like I said, never set out to write all these books, but it, it just seems like there's always more stories to tell. And you learn so much when you're researching the work and you kind of like stick in your pocket things that you want to come back to later on for future works because you you feel you've discovered another path that you really haven't, you know, fully journeyed down. And, you know, as much as I would want to write about other things that have nothing to do with the Beatles, there's still other stories there to tell that eventually I want to get around to.
0: Fascinating stuff right there, Robert. And when it comes to the Beatles, you know, it's never ending how much you can learn. And, um, your books are wonderful. Just want to say that. And I can already tell just from your point of view, we're going to have uh, some heated debates along the way. <laughs> I'm sure we will. <laughs> on the show. But that's fine. And um, Steve, you and I actually, even though we've been doing our show for two years, we haven't talked too much about the work that we've done. So very briefly, maybe you can just fill people in on you know, everything you did and are still doing in addition to this show.
1: Well, I kind of got started back in... In the mid '90s, um, back when I don't know that there was much of an internet at, at that point, and I really kind of started, you know, took an interest in the internet, and I wanted to get on there. Not necessarily to do, uh, you know, I wasn't originally looking to do something beetle-wise. I was just looking to do something to get on to get on there, you know, to be out there. Hmm. And I uploaded a few pages of. Um, HTML that I did on my own about, I think it was about the Beatles, and um, and that's where the Abbey Road website started, and then it expanded. You know, it's been so long; it's been it's hard for me to remember now. But it expanded to the news thing, which wasn't originally part of the uh, original idea. Um, I you know I started asking people for you know to do uh, um, you know essays and stuff. I know Alan allowed me to use his interview with uh, George Martin about the, the mono versus stereo situation early on. that was one of the things I, I had that caused a lot of interest, but there just wasn't anybody. I mean, most of the people that were doing stuff on the Beatles were just putting out discographies and, you know, vote doing votes and things like that. There wasn't any real information. And that's one of the things that, that I worked on. And then, because of my association with the, with the newspaper I was working at, you know, I had access to um, the wire services and I was getting a lot of information about, you know, things that were happening with the Beatles, uh, you know, as little as there was. And I was also getting partially also because I was involved with um, TV listings at the paper I was working at, I was hearing about things that were coming on TV. So I kind of, got started there and i and i decided to use that information and i started writing about this and and you know started doing daily summaries and i mean it it expanded down the line to where i followed the uh, the illness of george harrison when george got ill i followed that um i mean there were just so many things i i mean i've recounted before about some of the stories that i found i i believe i was the first one to find out about the concert for george um there were other things too the the um when yellow submarine was first um remastered, uh, remastered yeah the very first time my um, source told me about that and i and i had that up and so there's been the little things here and there and 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 but i just it's my interest in in news i, I mean i my musical interest uh, are far beyond the Beatles. I'm I'm I love a lot of things actually. And um but um I'm and I actually have expanded more recently into jazz. Uh I became a big uh, Miles Davis fan in the last couple of years. I was not a big Miles Dav- Davis fan uh a long time ago. I also like uh Sinatra and Tony Bennett. So my, I have a very wide-ranging interest in music. But the the Beetle thing, just uh, I mean, I you know I'm a first generation fan. I sat, you know, uh, in front of my TV set uh, in '64 and watched them on Ned Sullivan. And I never did. I, I have to say, I did not see them in concert, unfortunately. And I've told the story that my father got cl- who who that uh, in '64 was kind of um, not real a big, a big fan of their haircuts. Got closer to them than we all did because he was working as a repairman, and their motorcade passed him by in uh, Harvard Square in Boston, um, mm-hmm. and, which was kind of funny. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've just it, my interest has been you know because of my news background, and and uh, so that's where kind of that all got started. And then after I left the paper uh, a few years ago. Um, I got offered the job with The Examiner and I've been doing that ever since and that's kind of expanded out to where I'm doing The Monkees vintage rock and roll TV on DVDs which I just wrote a a big review on the Batman TV series which absolutely thrilled me because I was so glad that that finally came out and then um, most recently Weird Al Yankovic is the latest addition to all the columns I do so I'm I'm a writing fool. That's basically the way it, <laughs> basically the way it is. So
0: you're just glued to that to the uh to the keyboard there. Oh, well, I'm trying all day. I,
1: I, well, trying not to be, but uh yeah, pretty much, yeah.
0: You know, and I think on behalf of a lot of Beetle fans who rely on you on a day-by-day basis for the up-to-the-minute news, you know, we all thank you for that. And I know I I use your news on my radio program, so thank
3: you. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, uh since Steve mentioned the, his coverage of basically the acceleration of, of George's illness in 2001 when his reports began running. That was basically when Bill King and I kind of uh, began consulting uh, via email on, you know, basically how we wanted to cover a possible passing of George Harrison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so you know, your your coverage actually spurred spurred that, and uh, it was uh, you know uh, what's the phrase I'm thinking of? Uh, you know, it was kind of like a cold slap in the face that that we yeah. realized that this man was actually very very ill, mm-hmm. and that the you know that was the really when the first the first possibility of him actually passing really became kind of reality.
4: Yeah, I remember when he he was stabbed in 1999, it seemed like it would be possible, too. Yes, that, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember I got a phone call in the middle of the night. I think it was about about four o'clock in the morning from a friend of mine who called me to tell me he had passed. Yeah. And I remember it it, actually I think it was a little earlier. I think it was about 3 a.m. And I remember getting up at that point. And I had to work the next day. I mean, that was when I was working at the newspaper mm-hmm. and I started writing at that point, And I had pretty much had the whole report up of what there was to know. Yes. That night. And, uh, before I went to work that day and, uh, it was, that was a long day. I'll tell you. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I remember, and I also got pegged by the newspaper to do something. So I was, you know, that was a very long day, but, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was, that was really interesting. That was, yeah. I mean, it was all part of that. And, uh, you know, everybody, I mean, I wasn't the only one, uh, you know, as you were saying, Al, I mean, you and, uh, and Bill and, 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 you know, and you guys covered it great too. So.
3: And the, the, you know, the added kicker of the fact that in the, in the interim between, uh, when you began reporting on it in July and then when George passed at the end of, of November, In the interim, September 11th had happened as well. So (laughs) it was kind of like everybody's emotions were very much, you know, right at the, you know, the, the boiling point.
4: Right. Right. You know, we, we as a pro, I don't know if people know this generally speaking, but newspapers do obituaries in advance of Mm -hmm. very, very famous people because, uh, you know, an an obituary of someone like George Harrison is going to be many thousand words and you don't want to be stuck there on the day it happens trying to get it done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had done his at least twice. I probably did the first one when he was stabbed.
3: Oh, right.
4: And, uh, you know, my, my strange experience, it, it, unfortunately, it didn't work in George's case, but what I found over the years with writing obituaries of composers and classical people, largely, is that once you write their advance obituary, you're basically guaranteeing them at least another 15 years of life. <laughs> Yeah. because it's just one of those things. If you haven't written the obituary, then, you know, then they're in trouble. Um, I was supposed to do John Cage's obituary, um, which is, I guess, peripherally related to the Beatles, because Yoko and John Cage knew each other.
3: Right.
4: But um, I was supposed to do his obituary one summer, and I saw him at a concert, and I said, so, um, you know, how's your health? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm in fine shape. And then two weeks later, he died, and I hadn't oh, done it. So. Yeah. But with George, you know, I mean, we we did it the first time. And then um, when he uh, when it was reported that he had cancer and that things were not looking good, I I sort of revisited it. And uh, and so, you know, when he died, I actually had everything ready to go. Um, But nevertheless, you know, it always sort of happens where when it actually happens, you look at it fresh and you end up rewriting a whole lot of stuff. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and went into the paper and you know and then other sections of the paper wanted to have aspects of the thing and uh you know talk about who to commission to write other pieces i think we had actually philip glass write a piece about george harrison so you know yeah it was a really busy day and and a sad day uh you know as as steve probably you know can tell you you know you're in it newspaper is a very busy place it's like a beehive you know and yet you've right. also got these emotions going on because you know George Harrison died and it's a big thing and, so, and, you, uh, and you
1: really have to you really have to uh, put those emotions aside exactly and, and it's and it's not always it's not always easy I mean I remember back no. in when John Lennon died um i mean i did I did a little bit of writing i mean Alan you did a, I'm sure a lot a lot more than I did but um, I had to do a little, they asked me to do a little thing for, for that too. And that was, that was really difficult trying to keep that, you know, kind of put that in perspective and, and, you know, and it, it. but you, I, you know, it's, it's just weird. It's the way newspapers are. And then, you know, I, and I have to say, I'm not sure it's like that as much now. I am somewhat critical of, and I'm I, not being in, the, in you know, being on the side, I'm a little critical of the way a lot of the, especially the Internet media is. Funny I should say that, but I'm talking about, you know, things like the cable news and stuff. Some of that is just really crazy, um, really, really crazy. So mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I can certainly relate to everything you're talking about here because in radio, where I used to work, we had to put together collages of people who were either rumored to be dying or very advanced in age. And even though in some ways it might be like a birthday tribute to someone who was in their 80s or 90s, in reality it was done so that stations would be ready to have something at any given time. So it's kind of a similar thing, but it's got to be weird for you guys writing something on the spot at the moment, especially if you're emotionally connected to the artist. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, got to be a really difficult thing to to go through oh absolutely yeah. i oh, yeah
3: I, I did a piece for for beetle fan in december of 1980 basically we had the the magazine's second anniversary um, issue pretty much all set and then of course december 8th happened and mm. uh bill basically got in touch with everybody connect concerned and you know asked us to uh basically just send in our thoughts and and send in whatever material we could possibly do I spent uh, I think every day that uh, that week I sent him reams of of newspaper material and then also that Wednesday I had to sit down and and do a uh do kind of a perspective piece and it was it's one of the most difficult pieces i've ever uh, i've ever done right yeah, absolutely it was uh as a matter of fact alan I w- i'm just curious did the times have an obituary for john lennon on file at that point
4: uh no they didn't and uh, yeah. uh, because you know we we Tended unless we heard that someone was very ill or it was in circumstances like someone breaking into your house and stabbing you. Right. Uh, we we tend not to mm-hmm. do them until people get into their seventies or so. You know because, uh, but no. So we didn't. And in fact, it's it's funny because uh, the first time I interviewed Paul McCartney in nineteen ninety, mm-hmm. uh, he just mentioned in passing I don't even know how it came up we were talking about fame I guess and he said well you know I I know that for instance you know you guys have all of our obits written you've got my obit written and I was thinking well actually I'm supposed to do it and I haven't done it so we (laughs) don't have your obit written (laughs) Wow. Uh, and I've always (laughs) it's written now Um, but it's but I always thought you know Especially because he obviously wasn't squeamish about that. Um, I've always wanted to try and pin him down for an obituary specific interview. You know, Mm. we used to do those. We used to have an obit writer named Alden Whitman. And when he turned up at your door, you knew that um, he was interviewing you for that. And you were guaranteed that anything you said would be off the record until that happened. And for someone like Paul, you know, that could be really interesting. Um, in but fact, he's never, yeah, he's never agreed to do it. I, I have a feeling that his publicists won't actually run the possibility past him, but I know that he's not squeamish about it. So if I could get the message to him, um, perhaps, you know, maybe one day we'll do it.
3: In fact, <laughs> the Times has uh, a whole series of video interviews, right? That basically right. are set to run only after the subject has died.
4: Right. Wow. And the very fir- the very first one that ran was Art Buckwall, the political uh, humorist. Mm. Wow. And the first thing he said was, If you're watching this, I'm dead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. But that was really interesting that Paul McCartney said that to you, Alan. But yeah. he was even thinking about that, being aware of, you know, getting ready for an obituary article. Yeah. That kind of thing. Well although, and even then, I mean, yeah, you know, it's like pretty young then. Yeah.
4: That's true. But someone like that, you know, has hung around with newspaper guys and he probably has heard over the years that yeah, they're they're prepared in advance for really famous people. And and so he just assumed that they were at every newspaper. Um and in some cases it's true, in some cases it's not. But uh Alan, yeah. are there
2: things that you want to ask Paul that you can only divulge that he you think he'd be willing to express after he is no longer?
4: I think that maybe his perspective on the breakup of the Beatles might be something that he might speak a bit more frankly about uh, if, if he knows that he's not going to have to answer the phone calls the next day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, actually, I mean, you know, these these interviews are usually, you know, for politicians and world leaders and things like that. But I I have a feeling that, Paul, you know, there's a lot about the Beatles story. um, And I think that Mark Lewison has experienced this with with his book. There's a lot about the Beatles story that the Beatles want to direct the way it's perceived. Oh,
1: absolutely. Um,
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, whether he would want that to change after he dies or not, I have no idea. But it's very possible that given the possibility, you know, you can say anything you want and it won't be published until after you've you've died might be something that would interest him, you know, because he has seen an awful lot and done an awful lot. And there may be things that he doesn't want to speak about now, but wouldn't mind being known later. Alan,
1: I don't think he'd be as candid as you, as you might think he would be. Um, well, one could only, hope. Only, well, yeah, mm-hmm. one could hope, but I'm, uh, only because he's always been so um, guarded and yeah. always and always been so knowledgeable about how he wants to put out. I mean, you know, his interviews are, are are very formulaic, and I don't, I, I really couldn't see that changing very much. Now, Ringo might be a little bit more. Uh, open, but I don't think I, I honestly uh, and, and not much because of the way they all are now. But yeah. I don't think I don't think Paul would be as uh, he might he might be a little bit, but I don't think he'd be uh, as I mean I don't think he'd go slamming Yoko or anything like that. I think he would he would play it very close to the vest like he does now. I don't think he'd fear he'd off that much.
0: I don't know I don't know if I agree with you, Steve, because I think Paul has been a lot more candid in recent years it depends on who is interviewing him and for what purpose that's, that's the interviews true, being done that's true too you know i've seen interviews with, with paul in england especially where he opens up much more than he does here so it all yes, depends upon so. the circumstance you know if it's if it's your typical interview to promote the new album he's going to say the same things and it's very formulaic but it depends on who is asking him the questions and for what purpose it's being served yeah he
3: seems to be much more relaxed when he does uh, interviews in England, especially, especially radio and TV interviews where uh, he can be a little bit, you know, kind of stretch out a little bit more. Uh, whereas here, I think he realizes that he's going to get pretty much the same questions over and over again, you know, no matter where he appears, no matter, you know, uh, in fact, uh, Alan's interviews with him have been, you know, very refreshing. Because he even would say that you know he was being asked things that he had never been asked before, right. you know, by somebody who was particularly knowledgeable, which is you know not the case with a lot of uh, you know <laughs> some of those uh, those Larry King interviews uh, were right. painful. Right. So maybe if we yeah. maybe
4: if we did such an interview, he would he would say, if nothing else, listen, I gotta come clean. I never dreamed yesterday.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. The Walworth was me.
3: Right. There (laughs) we go. And I really am dead.
0: (laughs) So before we continue with more of the conversation here, I thought that I would just very briefly give a background on my career because even in the two years that I've been on the show with you, Steve, I've never talked about the work that I've done other than mention my show. But I first started doing a Beatles radio program in 1982 On my college radio station at New York Tech on Long Island. And I did it for a year and a half. And while I was doing it, I was developing the show and creating something that I didn't realize at the time was pretty unique because I was mixing the Beatles and group, uh, the Beatles group and solo music together. And at the same time, having trivia questions every week, doing thematic sets every week, having news every week, mixing that with interviews, and just pretty much throwing in everything you could possibly put into a Beatles show. And a lot of that, I think, without my realizing it at the time, I was very influenced by the book uh, altogether now mm. from uh, Harry Castleman and Walter Pedrasic, which I I understand. I read an interview with Mark Lewison where I think he said that that was the first book he bought, or he was very influenced by that book for some reason. Yeah, he saw it as a but challenge. The thing
3: is,
0: yeah. yeah. But um, that particular book took you through 1975 and it had not just the group, but it mixed the solo with it. And also songs the Beatles wrote for other artists, and also in their solo careers, and I began to think of that as all one body of work, and that's pretty much the way that I view the Beatles catalog now. I don't really separate the two, and I know there are a lot of people that will disagree with that, but during those one and a half years, my first, the beginning of my career in, in radio, I started doing the show that way, and then I took the show to a radio station in New Jersey, WDHA, where Al was a frequent guest, as well as Tom Franjoan. And, um, I developed the show there even further for, uh, 10 years. And then, uh, my show was heard on serious, not serious on XM radio for six years. I was on two different channels there doing news on, on, uh, on one channel, their 60 channel and doing my long form show on another channel called fine tuning. And, uh, more recently the show was syndicated and it's on about 20 stations right now. And I also do a live version on WNHU which is heard on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 but it's a really refreshing look at the Beatles' careers because it really treats everything they've ever been involved with as really one big body of work.
1: I like that and approach. And so
0: when you mix it all when you mix it all together it's it's really when you go from Rubber Soul to Back to the Egg to Double Fantasy to Please Please Me to Brainwashed and something from paul's classical music and you mix it all together and you say it's all one big body of work and you hear it on a regular basis that way you hear the music differently so you know it's just that's my approach to everything that i've ever done on the beatles whether it's uh... my music show on radio or the talk shows that i've been doing everything i never just focus only on the group it's everything mixed together everything's all important so uh... That's what I've been doing for 32 years in work on the Beatles on the radio. So there you go. Cool. And with that, I thought that um, each of us could just very briefly say what it is about these four guys <laughs> that has held our interest for as long as it has for us to be doing the enormous amount of work that we've done for as long as we've been doing it. So why don't we start with you, Al?
3: Well, I've always felt that the, you know, the two elements... Uh, that made the Beatles the phenomenon that they were, are the, you know, the music. That's obviously the most, the most obvious thing, the most obvious element. But the other element is them, those four people. And I think that's what is, has always been so fascinating in, the, in that they are four very unique personalities And that's, and, and there really is no other group of their time or since who has that kind of, of unit of four very, very unique personalities, which developed over time, as uh, Ken was just saying about the, um, the solo careers being just perhaps an extension of the, of the group years. And that's probably what's been most fascinating is to watch them grow as, as people. Uh, And, and I, you know, and I include John and George in the, in that because obviously their, their legacies have grown since even though they are no longer part of uh this life their their legacies and uh and plus we keep finding out new things about them plus we've been able to see ringo and paul grow into uh into their 70s now mm-hmm. and especially the their the the career arc all of the various directions in which paul has gone and, and also the, the Ringo's arc from, you know, the, the, the great success he had in the, in the mid seventies to a period in the eighties where he basically could hardly even get arrested. Uh, and plus was, was in pretty bad shape physically. And then, right. and then in 1989, reemerging, having gone through rehab. And going back out on the road with the All Star Band, which at that point was thought of to be, you know, maybe just a one shot thing. Twenty five years later, it's uh, he, he's been almost omnipresent, and um, and is and you know has a fabulous reputation now as a as a band leader, considering mm-hmm. all of the the various egos he's had to deal with. Um, he's he has a you know a sterling reputation now so that's you know, that kind of thing there always there's there's really always something interesting going on in the world of the beatles plus there's also the history of the of the group itself which which still dominates so and you know right. that's uh, uh it's what's kept my interest going and it's what's kept uh, publications like beatle fan Going and why there are so many, so many Beatles, uh, given, (laughs) as you well know, given what terrestrial radio is like now, the fact that there are still so many Beatles shows, weekend Beatles shows on terrestrial radio is testament to how much interest there still is in these four people.
0: Right. Might I just add one thing here, Al? Because you remind me of one thing when I was on WDHA in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and it was that year, 1989, and there was all this talk, Ringo is going to be on the road, and I had no idea in what particular format Mm -hmm. that was going to be. But these were just rumors at the time. My biggest blunder ever on the radio, I said this, and I'll share this with everybody, I said, take it from me, it ain't going to (laughs) happen. Twenty-five years later, right. yeah, <laughs> jeez. Anyway, Alan, how about you?
4: I have to say that for me, the main thing really all these years has been the music, um, because I mean, let's face it—I've been a serious music critic all my life, and uh, much of my life, and and music is just naturally what I focus on. And in the case in the in the case of their music, there is just something that from the very beginning was just so magnetic and more than magnetic you know you wanted to see more than with most other groups exactly how it was made and what they were doing and what they were singing about what the stories behind the lyrics were i mean with a lot of other groups it's true you if you like the group enough you wanted to know what the backstories were and that kind of thing and you know, in the Stones, whether it was, you know, it was Keith that came up with the satisfaction lick, and it was Brian who did this or that, but with the Beatles, it was consistently interesting, um, and less so with other groups. Uh, I mean, I've listened to, obviously, I listen to an awful lot more than the Beatles, and some of them are hundreds of years older than the Beatles, and are still fascinating uh, to me and to many other people, but there's something that uh, you know, especially once bootlegs started coming out, and you you began to hear some of the outtakes and some of the things that they rejected, and uh, and you think about, well, okay, why? You know, it's uh, that that was perfectly good too. And uh, but and even before that, before there were bootlegs, once you started hearing the differences between the mono and stereo mixes, I mean, I found that fascinating. Just musically, I found everything about them fascinating. And I can't, I mean, obviously there are tracks I like more than others, but I don't think there is anything they've done that I don't want to hear, you know, probably... Probably at the bottom of the list might be something like Mr. Moonlight. And Mr. Moonlight is actually pretty good. So, um, mm. you know, uh, and and as a, a classical guy, revolution number no. nine to me is just brilliant. So, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't have that problem that a lot of other people have. Um, I have to say as well, you know, when we, when we talked about what we would – Think about during the week uh, about about the Beatles and what drew us to them and it's kept us interested. We we kind of had said that beyond the music, and and so obviously I'm I'm, I'm protesting those terms. Um, but uh. really, everything that Al said is also true. I mean, their personalities were completely magnetic too, like the music. You wanted to you wanted to know what made these guys tick. You wanted to know what the chemistry between John and Paul was, between John and Paul and George, what what Ringo's contribution to it all was, how they worked together, and the presentation of the Beatles to the world um was perfect for that i mean even though hard day's night was fictional and help was even more <laughs> fictional you sort of watched those things and you saw the interactions with each other and there was some degree to which they were real because they weren't actors and they were reacting to each other um and you saw all of these things and all of their tv appearances and uh, and everything as a a kind of glimpse into that fascinating world um in addition Especially towards the sort of late Beatles era, when John, in particular, became more politically involved, you know, that brought a whole extra dimension to this story that was already so compelling. You know, you you wanted to you wanted to hear what they thought about things, uh, and I guess the spirit of the age was that what they thought about things and what they said they thought about things was pretty much the way a lot of us felt anyway. And so we felt like we had a, a spokesman or a group of spokesmen. Um, so, you know, yeah. and it's all that stuff. And even, you know, in the solo years, uh, you know, they've had their ups and downs and nevertheless, I mean, get, even given the ups and downs, they've each produced an incredible body of work uh, that is I don't know very listenable, very enjoyable a lot of the time, and uh, you know they they're still out there. Well, Paul and Ringo are still out there doing you know, what they do, what they love doing, which is playing and making music, and uh, you know it just to me it's it's never gotten uninteresting,
0: right? Well, you know this 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 question of why we're still so fascinated with them. Realistically, that's like a five-hour show. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, we can go on and on about, and we can go off on a tangent on uh, for a lot of different uh, aspects of the Beatles' careers and and uh, what we all find fascinating about them. Robert, what's what's your take on this?
2: Well, it's funny. I, I think that Alan basically just said everything I wanted to say, but uh, I would add to that. You know, with music being the gravitational pull that sucks you into their story. There's any number of rock acts that I feel moved by, as I did with the Beatles. That you know hit me first, although it was after their their active period of working together. So already there was an element of history to them, although they were still the four men were still living and producing music at the time I got into them. And I'm a big history guy, always have been. So it's like I was always fascinated by what happened before I came along in the world. And, you know, once you get through the music and you seep it into your DNA and you know it inside and out and it never disappoints, you know, there's going to be songs you like more than other songs and songs you don't feel like listening to at any given moment, but you always come back to it. And it's got the familiarity to it, almost like a family thing where, you know, you don't always want to see your relatives, but, you know, that Comfort level will always be there when you're ready to go back to it. You know, that's how it is with Beatles music. And once you start getting into their actual history, you know, it it started out at a certain level. As I would said earlier, when I started reading any book I can get my hands on with them, and then the real scholarship started, and then all of a sudden the floodgates opened, not only with, you know, all kinds of books of varying levels of quality and detail coming out, as well as the floodgates of unreleased stuff and alternates and things like that. And here you were afforded this great window into how they created the magic, which was the final recordings, you know, the finished product. You know, you get to hear all the stuff. And there's any number of other bands I like where I have to ask myself sometimes, do I really want to listen to every studio outtake or, you know, alternate take of everything they ever did in the studio, the way I do with the Beatles. And to be honest with myself, most of the time that answer is no. And there's any number of reasons for that. But, you know, the Beatles had some projectable quality with their personalities that I think you become a fan long enough, you start to kind of see the world through their eyes and wonder, you know, as you dive into their history, what brought them to the point of creating this greater than the sum of its parts thing? That they never could have planned or envisioned on the scale that it became, you know. How did it happen? And it's just a fascinating, fascinating story, you know. And it just seems like anytime you think you've got a pretty good understanding and there's nothing more to learn, something else will turn around and, and just surface, you know. Most recently with um, Mark Lewis and his Tune In book, and all of a sudden more stories are coming out that you never heard before or that are different from what had been sort of the established truth to this point. And that makes right. it even more fascinating. Because you thought you had a pretty good handle on things, then all of a sudden, oh, really? That's how they got signed to EMI or something like that. You know, it it just it is endlessly fascinating. The way some people will debate World War Two or the Civil War or the Renaissance over and over again. You know, I think for people of a certain, you know, worldview and a temperament that the beatles are that body of interest you've got the music you've got the personalities you've got the drama you've got any number of compelling aspects that obviously we as human beings are fascinated with and they are like the gift that keeps on giving over and over again and, you know, there will always be new things to hear that will surface. There will always be you know somebody who might have been sitting on some great stories all this time. Suddenly they get revealed. You know, there's always going to be something to look forward to. And I don't think there's ever going to be a sense to where, yeah, OK, we've explored this well thoroughly. Nothing more to see here, folks. I don't ever see that happening with the Beatles.
0: Hey, Robert, can I bottle those words? <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. I mean, wow. How articulate that was. I agree with everything you had to say there, except the sum being greater than the parts. We'll get to that in another there show. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Steve? Well,
1: uh, I, you know, having, uh, uh, I mean, back in 64, um, I kind well, I kind of look at it from a little different angle. Back in 64, they were all kind of personalities. It was akin to the celebrity thing that kind of goes on today. You know, on that first Ted Sullivan show, the way the Sullivan the the, um, the camera focused in on each one, and and you kind of it was Paul against John against George against Ringo, and and that kind of went through the whole hard days night thing, and then you know as years go on, years went on, and especially into the solo years, they broke out of that, and you got uh, things got a lot more serious, and now today you've got uh, you know you've got Yoko, you've got Olivia you've got Paul, you got Ringo, you know, each kind of doing their own thing. The Beatles started out as kind of a teen band, as a boy, you know, a boy band really, and they've become very, it's become very serious, and not only very serious, but huge money, and the evolution from 64 to now is just kind of astounding that they've gotten that far. And I mean, for me, it's always been about the music, you know, especially in the beginning, and then you know, when I when I first came upon bootlegs, um, the the BBC stuff was the first stuff that I ever heard about, um, and also the the, uh, the Get Back uh, sessions. And you know, that kind of that just blew things wide open for me. Um, I mean, it continues today with all the stuff that we have, all the you know the. Uh, all the unreleased stuff, uh, all the the BBC stuff uh, that uh, Capitol's put out in recent years, and you know, there's uh, it's it's really all the music. Um, you know, that's really all it is, and and I just enjoy all of that uh, with the Beatles and and the solo stuff too. And you know, I've I've said before, you know, you really wish they would put more stuff out, but it's not gonna, you know, it's just not gonna happen. Um, you know, but. You know, just enjoying what we have now and what we've had it's is really what it's all about.
0: Never say never, Steve. <laughs> no. They you don't know to, don't they? No. Don't they have to in order to preserve their copyrights? Yeah, we were talking uh, about yeah. that. Yeah. With Alan on our mm-hmm. show here. Yeah. So. they're denying it well, well, at the moment course. but but they, they do <laughs> have
4: to. <laughs> well
1: didn't they did not okay. something change though, Alan, that that. that it's not exactly like it was last year, is that correct? Cuz I remember reading something, not necessarily an educated opinion, but somebody said that things had cha- the perspective of that from last year had changed. Is that true?
4: Not that I've heard of.
1: Okay. Well, you're a more educated source than the than the person okay. whose opinion I I read of that before. I mean, it's
4: interesting because um, the two people that I've asked about what's coming out are Dylan's people and Beatles people, Universal. And Universal says, no, we have no plans, but you don't know if you can believe that. Um, Both Sony and Dylan's people say, well, you know, we'll get back to you with what it's going to be. So if they didn't have to do it, Dylan wouldn't be doing it either.
1: Right, right.
4: So that's yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. They don't have to put it out. They don't have to preserve the copyright. We'll put it out. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and actually and actually if you look at um, you know, Amazon UK, there are several releases be, that have been put out public domain the releases. That, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And in fact there's a there's one I just saw recently on UK and on amazon.com that both that are, are incorporating, you know, the outtakes so it's definitely starting. It's definitely going to happen. Um, so, interesting. That's good.
0: All right, for me, let me just say that I was born in 1959, so everyone can figure out my age. And throughout the 60s, as a little kid, I heard Beatles music constantly. And, you know, I, I owned every single Beatle record. I was either given them uh, as as a present or I bought them myself. So I was very familiar with the music although I couldn't fully process it, and we certainly didn't know, you know, historically what they were doing other than the fact that it was great music. But in the 70s, that's when I really became a major Beatle fan. Uh, Although, let's face it, in the 60s, I loved them to death. I listened to their music left and right. But in the 70s, it was really through the solo music that I really became a major fan. And in particular, around 1973, which was probably the biggest year for the solo Beatles and it was that year when I became aware of all the releases as it was happening and buying it when it was happening and those albums that came out in the 70s affected me the same way that the Beatles affected some of you in the 60s so I listened to those records just as much as people listen to the group and I grew to love and appreciate each of the four of them individually for what they became they have their own identities all together. and true it all started with the Beatles But I think they really grew and um, blossomed as artists on their own. And so I never lost the fascination with all the solo music as it was released. And in turn, I've grown to appreciate even more what they did as a band. So very often what I will say on my show is that there's over 100 albums to pick from now in the entire catalog of the Beatles, which really is astounding when you think about it. Um, What I often don't say is that 80% of that is solo music. So I happen to really appreciate most of everything that they've done. And uh, to me, the music just gets better with age. And kind of like what Al said, I think one of the most uh, important aspects of the Beatles are their personalities. And the fact that most groups really had maybe one leader of the group who was the spokesperson, and maybe that person was interviewed. But with the Beatles, all four of them were given a chance to get a lot of time in front of the cameras, whether it was the movies, the press conferences, there was a very considered effort to make sure that all four of them were given attention. And who can you say that about with any other band? And I think that made us, you know, increase interest in them as people and they're fascinating people. And the contrast between the four of them musically and as people are what make them even more fascinating. So, even though some people may have a favorite Beatle in terms of their, his music or his personality, if they weren't as different from each other, they wouldn't be as fascinating. And I love the fact that all four of them are so different, and there is that contrast. And uh, you know, for that reason, I love all four of them, and uh, the interest has never waned for one second. So that's why, for me, it's, it's their entire body of work. I sometimes think about something that George Harrison once said about Bob Dylan when he said that if all he ever wrote was blowing in the wind, he's done so much more than the average person. Mm -hmm. Think about how you can apply that to the Beatles. If all they ever gave us was Hey Jude, they could have stopped right there. And even if uh, all they gave us was their group catalog, for a lot of people, that's more than enough. But then they went further, and they had all the success that they had with their solo careers. And when you put two and two together, and you have this gigantic body of work it's absolutely amazing i can't believe you know how great this body of work is and so you know i never get tired of it and that's why my fascination remains as strong as it is
2: sounds pretty universal Mm -hmm.
0: yeah (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) definitely all right so um i might add here as before we close um that in the two years that steve and i we're doing this show. It was a very news-centric show, and I want to make sure that everyone understands who's listening that the show the show, has changed the format because we can talk about virtually anything that has to do with the Beatles, any of their music, their history, but we'll never lose sight of the fact that the news is very important. So when things do come up in the news that we feel really needs to be addressed, we will do that here in the show. It may make up an entire show. It may be part of a show. But we're never going to lose that aspect of the show. So anything that has to do with the Beatles, past and present, we can talk about here freely on, on this program. And uh, if any of you would like to get in touch with any of the five of us, <laughs> plenty of people to go around here on this show, the uh, email address is show at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us on our Facebook page, and I'm sure we'll all be happy to contact anyone listening to our show. And we appreciate everyone who took the time to listen to our first show together, which has been a joy. So, uh, Al, Alan, and Robert, and Steve, this has been great. It's been fun. <laughs> see you next week. Yes, it has. So, uh, for things we said today, I'm Ken Michaels, thanking all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time.
1: And this is Steve Marinucci saying
2: we will see you next time. This is Al Sussman saying, we'll see you next time. This
0: is Alan
4: Cozen saying, we'll see you next time.
2: This is Robert Rodriguez saying, see you next time.